0: morning families good to have you in the house um i'm kent i'm one of the pastors here and to set up just where we've been for those who haven't been with us we've been in a series throughout the fall uh what we're calling the gift of obedience what we regularly do as a church family is we take series either through scripture and through books or through things part of the church calendar and a couple weeks we starting advent and then one of the other major series that we tend to touch down in are what we call spiritual formation series or a series where we seek to talk about what it's like to actually form ourselves into the image of jesus here in our time in our place as a community in community and so sometimes we do those through practical series like prayer or fasting and sometimes we do those through these series where we talk about just like what does it look like to practice obedience and this week specifically called the gift of obedience primarily for two reasons one we I've already been talking and we will continue to talk about. Obedience only comes through the Holy Spirit. It only comes as a gift, and that there are most times when you have been trying in your life to obey and found yourself unable to, it is because you can't with the software that you have been given and gifted and has been corrupted. But the Spirit is what works inside of us to actually grow over a period of time, over years, into slowly but surely the image of Jesus. And then secondly... We've been talking about how obedience right now in uh, the framework of culture is seen as an external submission to something external to me, and uh, because of that, it can be something that uh, I take on, and it can tarnish or ruin the authentic version of myself, and we want to, through the series, explore, is that really the reality? Are we designed to push away from all external forms of definition or are we designed to find the life-giving way we are designed, the way of love and peace and unity and joy and self-control? And are we designed to walk in that? And so within that series, we've actually started a series within that series because up to this point, we've mainly been talking about the way that you see obedience, which you and I see obedience as an individualistic call, because there is a level of you are called, regardless of what is true about your family, or true about your community, or true about those around you, to seek to be obedient and to, you know be like that little poster of like all the fish going one way and the one fish going the other way. And like it might not always be popular to do what is good, or whatever that thing is that you saw in your sixth-grade uh class. And so then there's times where obedience is very much so individualistic. But because we are not a communal culture, we fail to often recognize the communal nature of obedience as well. But the reality is is that we are practicing a faith and we are reading a text that was written from an Eastern communal culture and who's one who very much so saw obedience as a communal act. And there's a way that even we can conceptualize as obedience as a communal act. We can understand the reality that if any of us anywhere begin to push against the fragments of reality, begin to distort reality to our will, and begin to say, this is what I want reality to be regardless of what's good for others, it begins to ext- distort, it begins to subjugate, and it begins to produce chaos. Or you could say it like this, because we're called to love one another, if you are running in a way that is damaging to yourself, it damages us merely by the fact of that we love you. And that just like it is pain and torturous to see whether it be children or parents or friends or those who you care deeply about destroy themselves through ravaging themselves in addiction you recognize that yeah their obedience is as connected to my welfare as their own and so last week we talked about what does it look like to be obedient as the church body within the church and there is a reality to being a called out community that is the city on a hill that is the called out ones but then We as a church, through one anothering, through loving one another, through building up one another, become a mature body, and we exist in a cultural reality. And we exist in a time and place with laws and policy and a economic system and a government system. And so the question we want to explore today is how do we as the called-out community interact in the larger society in which we participate? How do we seek obedience in that way? And so, in order to do that, we have already looked towards the text of Jeremiah 29, and I want to also do just an overview of the way that God's people have regularly interacted with the society in which they found themselves in, because this is something that is not a modern conversation. This is as long as the Scriptures and as long as Christianity itself, we have talked about what does it look like to engage healthy with culture. And there's ways that maybe you have done that yourself. Maybe uh, you are one that you withhold and draw back in order to not be polluted by the context of the world in order to have a more prophetic voice. There are uh, quotes from church fathers and monks and and those who have pulled away that say that the church can never speak to the world unless they are apart from the world and have something to to commune with the Father and then say. Or maybe you were one that uh, you seek to gain and use political power and authority uh, that we were given to create policy and laws and and reflect the values and align with the beauty of God's kingdom and design. Or maybe you're one who's prone to become a counterculture for the common good and seeking to influence from grassroots, to build the kingdom in around dinner tables in neighborhoods with nonprofits within your own family and seek to gain influence that way. And maybe you have a strength or proclivity towards one of those? And maybe you have see one of those as a weakness, or see one of those as something that you are less prone to go toward, but the reality of what I want to continue to come back to and I want to present to us is that as believers, as the called out community of the church, we are to be strangers in a strange land, but we are to seek the peace of the strange land in which we find ourselves, seeking always for a better king, a better city, that which we were truly made to be our home. But this isn't just, we don't neglect the idea of, or see the world as just straightening deck chairs in the Titanic in a pointless effort to just try to make things better while it all goes to hell in a handbasket. We seek the peace. And so, in that, uh, this concept of, or the language of seeking the peace or being strangers in a strange land comes from the naming of Moses' son, Gershom, when Moses is leaves Egypt and spends his life growing up with the Midianites, a nomadic people. He has a son, and he names that son Gershom, which means, hey, I've been a stranger, and I'm in a strange land. And that gets picked up through the biblical test or the biblical story. You see things like in First Chronicles 29:15, it picks up on that language from Moses. It says, for we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Or then you see uh, Old Testament, or New Testament, Hebrews 11:13. it says this. These all died in faith, talking about the fathers that came before us, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, that they have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, They would have the opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In all this, in looking at the story of Scripture, there is a way to look through it at the lens of a story of God's people being constantly in a state of exile, looking for the city that is prepared for God's people. It starts right off the jump when you have Abraham. Abraham, the father of the patriarch of the faith of Christianity, is called to leave his country and to leave his family to go out to a land in which God calls him. He says, hey, I want you to leave all of that which you are a part of, and I want you to separate yourself, to pull out, because I'm going to make you the father of a nation that is going to be a prophetic voice to the world, that is going to show what it's like to be in my kingdom and to show what I am like, and that they will exercise the reality and the way that I intended it to be, the way that I created it to be. And so Abraham then bounces around, and he eventually receives this land, as the promised land, but then uh, throughout a number of circumstances, his grandchild, Israel, uh, goes to Egypt because of a famine, but sent ahead of them was one of his sons, Joseph. And Joseph, while he is in Egypt, and now that Israel is coming out of the land he was promised, he becomes a sojourner in Egypt, again, again because of this famine, but the famine was... Something that then Joseph, part of God's family, gives the, uh, the king at this point has a prophetic dream, a dream of these seven fat cows that are then eaten by seven sickly cows. And Joseph says, hey, this is essentially what's going on. Hey, you're going to have seven years of abundance, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. And when you have that seven years of famine, you will need to have been storing up everything from those seven years of abundance, or you're not going to make it. And so... He says you basically need to appoint someone to make a plan. And Pharaoh says, like, wow, this guy's got a killer plan. Let's go ahead and make this guy the one who's going to do it. And then he says this uh, about Joseph. It says in Genesis 41, 33 through 41. I don't have this, so just listen along. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. This is Joseph speaking. All and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to the servants, Can we find a man like this? And whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. And so in this instance... Joseph is interacting with society, very much so by rising through the system and gaining ultimate political power. He becomes second only to Pharaoh, and really, he becomes the main power, just the fact that he is calling the shots. Pharaoh says, hey, I trust you to lead the people of Egypt. If you command it, it is so. The only difference between me and you is I'm sitting on the throne, but you have all the power that I have. He gives him his signet ring. He gives him the ability to make policy and law. And because Joseph is a wise and good leader, the city flourishes. Not only the city flourishes, but again, Israel and those who are in other places come to Egypt and come to receive food and are saved. That It's not only that Joseph is a blessing to Egypt where he is in the city, he's a blessing to all of the land around him. And it's a picture of what God said to Abraham, hey, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to create you to be this culture, and then you are going to bless all the nations through you, through your family. And you begin to see that start happening in the story of Joseph. But then after that, you get a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph and begins to oppress the people of Israel within the lands of Egypt. And then you get a figure of Moses who is, at first, has political power and he seeks to use it. He sees an Egyptian killing an Israelite or beating an Israelite, and so he takes his power and he kills that Egyptian. And then the Israelites reject him, and so he actually ends up leaving the city because now he has committed a crime. And so he goes on the run and he goes on the outside and becomes an outsider to the system and then comes in and speaks truth to power. He says to Pharaoh, Hey, you're going to release the people of God and allow them to go worship God in their land. And through the power invested in him through the Father, he is able to then do the mighty works and the strikes against Pharaoh, and then eventually. The people of God begin sojourning in the wilderness and they begin exiled and they're walking for 40 years going throughout the wilderness until they finally arrive and settle a kingdom. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at just the macro story of the kings, and you get the kings in this kingdom, and they are, the kingdom splits into two, and you get northern Israel, you get 20 kings that you read in the book of Kings in northern Israel, and all of them are bad. They're 0 for 20. But then you get the southern kingdom of Judea, and they also show you 20 kings throughout the book of Kings, and you get an 8 for 12. They're slightly better, but still a considerably losing record. And so you have this sense that the kings and the powers that are now settled continually are corrupted, and not only are the kings corrupted, but then the, the sacramental and priestly system becomes corrupted. And you get prophet after prophet coming outside the city or coming outside of the system to speak and say, hey, you've made the, what you were called to be, this nation that is going to demonstrate the beauty and the reality of the kingdom of God, and you've perverted it, and you've become drunken with not only your power, but also the, that which you received, the, the tithes of the people, and you're exhorting the poor. And so you have Elijah come to northern Israel, and he calls out the prophets on Mount Carmel, and he has a display which he shows like, hey, your prophets mean nothing, and God has ultimate power by creating this fire on this altar, and then he immediately flees out of the city and continues to have a prophetic ministry where he comes back from the outside, untarnished from that which is going on within the corrupted people of God. And then you have Isaiah in Jerusalem, and he At one point, walks naked to say, hey, this is eventually what's going to happen to all of Israel. They're going to be carted out in exile naked. And he continues to be kicked out and thrown out. Jeremiah, another one of these prophets that we read from already, gets thrown in a ditch and left for dead. Why? Because they continue to push these people to the margins because they're from the outside and they're speaking truth to power. And eventually, because they're speaking from God, what they say comes to pass and Israel and Judea are taken off into exile in Babylon, and the exile story continues and picks up here. And before they go, at least before Judea goes, Jeremiah said in just the text that we read, he said, hey, you're going to go there and." Your prophets, the false prophets amongst you, those who are telling you what they want to hear, are going to tell you, hey, don't worry. This isn't going to last long. God's going to come vanquish your enemies. He's going to bring you right back to Jerusalem. So just sit tight. This is going to be quick. And Jeremiah says, this will not be quick. You're going to be here for a generation or more. I want you to take wives and daughters and have sons and daughters and build gardens and build houses. And I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city that you are in, though you are in Babylon, the definition of the city of chaos throughout Scripture. I want you as strangers in a strange land to seek the peace of that strange land. And so then you get stories like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, both of which enter into the political system. They are given authority. They take on the process of the political system. In fact, they even, uh, not only are they giving authority, they're given uh, new names. They're given Babylonian names, and they accept this. They go by these Babylonian names. They fit within the system, and they use their power, except there's moments in which Daniel has said, hey, you pray, you pray only the king, and he says he speaks truth The power. He says, no, I can't do that. I seek the peace of the city, but you are not my king. Jesus is, well, God is my king. Yahweh is my king at this point. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are also called to bow down to the statue, the altar of the king, and they engage in peaceful protest. We cannot do this. And so you can kill us, you can throw us in the furnace if you want. But we seek the peace of this land. We'll work within your system. We will seek to create good policy, good rule, things that reflect the beauty of the kingdom of God. But you're not our king. And the second you press us to make you our king, we're out. And then you get Esther, who is taken at this point in the Persian Empire, taken by the king as a wife, and then when she learns, or her people learn, the Jewish people learn, that they are going to be killed by one of the king's uh, right-hand men, she then has a moment where she goes before the king, which is amazingly bold act because she could be killed for at this moment coming to the king unannounced and taking from his time when he has not called her and she prepares from a banquet and he says hey there's people in your system that are trying to kill my people and i want you to take care of that and the king sees favor on her and she works within the system to begin to bring peace and protection to the people of god and you get nehemiah who's a cupbearer to the king again within the political system and then when he hears about the fact that Jerusalem has been crushed and its walls are torn down, he grieves and the king sees him and he says, hey, what's troubling you? And he says, hey, my, my city has been crushed, my, my walls the walls have been torn down. And he says, hey, you go and you take whoever you need and you rebuild the walls of your city. And he's commissioned by the king of that time. And so then they come back eventually. They rebuild the kingdom, they rebuild Jerusalem. But it's never quite the same. At this point, it is now occupied territory. In the time of Jesus, it's occupied by the Romans. The Jews have a piece of their land, but they really only have it because the Romans allow them to have it. It's one of those things where, like, they're not really the owners of the house. If they can be told at any point, you no longer own the house. And not only that, they, the leaders of the temple immediately become corrupted again. And they gain power from uh, the Romans, and they, in order to keep that power, uh, break from the calling of God to lead the people to worship God, and they do whatever the Romans say see, see fit in order to keep their power. And so, in this point, you begin to get a prophet from outside the system called John the Baptist. He was a part of a group that leave the city, are not corrupted by the broken priesthood and the broken system, and begins speaking prophetically and begins speaking against power and begins saying, hey, there's there's coming a different way. And he's preparing a way for Jesus. And Jesus, this small-town rabbi, begins this ministry in which at times he pulls away. And at times he goes off in the wilderness and he prays and he comes back as a prophetic voice. And at other times he works within the system. He says, hey, if there's taxes, give it to Caesar. But hey, you give to God what is God. And there's times where he says, no, there is coming a time where I will be a king and everyone is going to bow down to me. He engages in every way of engaging culture. And then you get the early church the group of people in which one is started by the apostle paul who's a roman citizen we often don't think of him as a roman but as a roman he uses his roman citizenship to begin to spread this counterculture for the common good and at first it's an outlawed system and so they're meeting in house churches and they are bringing peace to those around them. In fact, they are one that during often many of the plagues, Christians would not flee the cities, but they would actually stay to care for the sick. In fact, you hear about this uh, from the writings of Julian the Apostate. Julian the Apostate hated Christianity, and he writes to a pagan priest, and he writes about this. He says, hey, when it came to the poor neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, Then I think the impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He's writing to this pagan priest, and he says, I hate the Christians. Why? Because they're phenomenally nice people, and they are doing what everybody wants us to do, and therefore they're getting more and more influence. So you need to start subverting the Christians' niceness. And then they begin to gain influence. And then eventually, most of the Roman Empire at this point becomes Christian. And Constantine, who was emperor at the time, some will argue he becomes a Christian and therefore he he makes. Christianity, the the faith of the empire and the religion of the empire and subverting paganism. Some would say he merely saw the writing on the wall, and all of a sudden when the political powers were shifting, he's not stupid, so he declares Christianity the rule of the day. Regardless of what happens, Christianity then begins to become the system. And in the system, it consistently struggles with this possession of power and at times again becomes corrupted and becomes a blend of a paganistic faith and a christian faith and begins to pervert once more and so eventually it begins to spread those faithful body of the called out church begins to spread it and goes across both the east and the west but because we're westerners we'll pick up on the western tradition it goes to europe and europe once again It goes into tribes and villages that are pagan, but because of seeking the peace and prosperity of the city, because of taking care of the poor, because of building hospitals. If you notice, all the hospitals are usually named after religious sects, the the Methodist hospitals and the, uh, the Presbyterian hospitals, or you have the Lutheran hospitals, and it's because these are Christians that have banded together in order to take care of the poor during the Black Plague, or during uh, yeah during the Great Plague of the Black Death, you have Christians caring and not leaving and vacating like everyone else does, but they're caring for the sick, and they begin again to gain influence and gain authority, and essentially, and after a while, Christianity becomes the rule and the culture throughout all of Europe, and then, as that and as it gains this power, it begins to struggle with this power. And the monarchy and the king and the leader of the church become one and the same and Christianity gets mingled with political power and riches and a person who is not primarily to seek to lead the people of God, but is to protect their own power and their own influence. And then Christianity in our context and a faith that pulls out of the system comes across to then the new territory of America and founds our country, which is not founded to be a Christian nation. That is a common misunderstanding. It is founded to be a free nation in which all people can practice the faith of which they are convicted to practice. And so while Western culture is greatly influenced by Judeo-Christian values, and that is widely understood and widely demonstrated. It is first and foremost, they say, hey, no, we're not going to create a state faith, but rather we are going to remain these forever separate so that there is never anyone coercing anyone to be any faith, and you are free to practice any faith in which you find yourself to be a believer and a participant of. They recognize, hey, when power came and forced Christianity, it didn't go well. In fact, then eventually that power rose and forced us out. And so we will create a system in which whether Christianity is dominant, whether Islam is dominant, whether Eastern spirituality is dominant, everyone is free to practice the faith of which they are called. And so, then we find ourselves in what initially is dominant because of the first settlers of the colonies, dominantly a Christian faith, and dominantly building churches and creating Christian communities, and the Christians begin building universities. Harvard, the first university, is built by Christians that come together to study and to learn and to know about the world, and then all the universities that spread out of that, is the Christian culture spreading out, and then you get years going by, and you have both Christians having a mix of trouble with power again, as well as a rapidly diversifying nation, and you have, at times, Christianity getting overly conflated with power and government, and eventually starts to lose its influence. And we find ourselves in the present day, in a post-Christian society. One that still has the trappings and the understandings of Judeo-Christian values, but one that is highly skeptical and, at large, rejecting of the Christian faith. And then that brings us to the question. How are you and I, in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the year 2023, Called to be strangers in a strange land and seek the peace of that strange land. And it's the same principles that we've observed over and over again, but I didn't really want to apply them, those principles being building the kingdom through a subversive counterculture around tables, through nonprofits, through caring for the sick and the poor and the marginalized of our city. But it also looks like using the influence and the power we've been invested in the democratic system to seek the peace, and the beauty, and the prosperity, and the reality of the kingdom. And then it also looks like speaking prophetically, breaking from the systems, and speaking truth to power when necessary. And so, just briefly looking at all three of these in real practical terms. As a church family, you guys kill it at being a counterculture within the city. We have, I mean, as strangers in a strange land, we have demonstrated, we have taken wives, we have produced children, we have (laughs) not shied from taking houses and building gardens and doing all the counterculture common good things for our city. But beyond that, we participate in adoption foster care. You participate in gathering your neighbors. Most people, when I come to your blocks, when I come to your houses, neighbors, you are known, you are influencing, you are caring for your neighbors. Many of our neighbors have come and received uh, connection and help from SOMA. Why? Because they know you and they know you care about them. We have People that involved in family lives, involved in apartment buildings, of section eight housing, we have people who have started nonprofits that have sought to care for those in poverty, sought for those to care for those in education gaps and fallen through cracks, those who seek to know high school teens and show them that they are known and loved. And this is something that I commend to us. And I regularly love the beauty and the culture of the family of Sama. And so in that, I want to speak now to how we engage in the other two areas, other two areas being seeking to use the power that we have as citizens, as Americans, as Paul did his Roman citizenship, and then how we speak prophetically to power. Let me say this as a precursor. I am going to choose my words carefully, and I'm going to speak carefully. And what you should hear at the end of this is not a beholden to any political party or system, that I'm going to speak at times prophetically toward both. I say that, and I emphasize that. Because if you hear something, I would like you to do one of two things. One, come and talk to me. And two, possibly re-listen, either on the podcast or on YouTube, because many times after we've spoken on anything in this territory, uh, people have come and they've said, hey, you said this, and I will often say, wait, did I say that? And we've had, we have great conversation. I'm always open to that. It's never like the sense of, like, hey, I didn't say that. You go away. No, we always will sit and talk. But there will be a point where they say, like, wait a second. You said something that I'm not sure I said. And I will go back and listen to podcasts. I never said it. But what that reality points to is by saying maybe just one word or one phrase... At times, because this is freighted with a lot of package, it picks up a whole list of things that other people have said that get imported into what I'm saying right now, which I did not say. And so I ask you to listen carefully and come speak to me. Again, my door's open, my email's on, my phone is on. But also, again, I'm not speaking towards either one. I'm trying to speak prophetically to both. And so here's the ways that I just want to speak to us briefly. One, it's right and good to use our faith to involve or to inform the way we vote, inform the policy that we seek. Law and values are inseparable. The idea that separation of church and state says that, yes, we are forever making a system where the state and the church never become one and the same, the state never enforces any one specific faith. However, that does not create a system in which you do not use your faith to engage the political square. And that is the case, then it becomes this weird system of like everyone can use your values to inform your political views or that which you think is good policy or law unless it comes from a faith, which is a core understanding of who you are, which really much like says you can only use your values if you can disconnect them from all human history which is just ridiculous and so you use your faith you use your understanding you're poring over scripture in order to yes participate in voting or if you see it, it is wise to not participate in voting to participate in protest or to not participate in protest to seek policy to demonstrate to be civically involved, to volunteer. And often in this is brought up, hey, but we can't legalize morality. Like, we can't legalize people's hearts. Yes, absolutely true. However, in Galatians, Paul's going to say, law is like a guardian. Law is like a teacher. Because we have legalized things that over time have affected people's morality. We made slavery illegal at a time where it was not overly popular, and over time and place and decades, that law has created a view of morality and a view of what is right and wrong. And so, yes, we don't legalize morality. You can't coerce anyone's heart, but you can create wise, good, peaceful rule that seeks to influence hearts and show the beauty of God's kingdom. Also, scripturally, as you pour over scriptures, you will find no specific systems. It will speak to really no specific exact laws that we're dealing with. And it, yes, speaks to issues, but not in the specificity that we will find ourselves talking about them in our public square. And so, for that reason, we need to seek to gain a heart of wisdom, which is what the scriptures are ultimately attempting to do, that so many times I find myself wanting to, and maybe yourself wanting to, engage the Scripture of like, show me what the answer is, and let me just find out what I need to know. But Scripture is never interested in doing that. It's always interested in presenting you, hey, here is reality, and here's the goodness of God, and as you meditate on these things, as you pour over these things, it slowly helps you gain a heart of wisdom. The metaphor I always use is that the Scriptures are not like the little black footprints on the floor in order for you to learn the tango and just know the steps. It's taking those away. It's, yes, giving you some principle and what wisdom and goodness, but eventually you need to take those away and you need to be able to interact in a wild and unpredictable situation in which you have gained a heart of wisdom and can discern. And so in that, um, as we seek to use Scripture to inform the way that we engage the city and engage the state and engage the country, the... One thing that we see is our political system is overwhelmingly complex, and how people attempt to best seek the peace of our city is overwhelmingly complex. And so the first principle is this. Let's be a place of overwhelming grace in this area. Let's withhold judgment. stop ourselves by saying, you said this or you voted this way, therefore this means all this about you. If you vote Republican, Democrat, third party, there are ways in which I know people that have poured over Scripture, have prayed, have sought to be faithful to their God as their king, and come up with all three of those options in the last several elections. So we withhold judgment. We seek unity and peace in our body. We seek to understand, not to put people in a box because of a word or a singular action. In that, we seek to have integrous rulers, those who are like Joseph, are wise, are those who are seeking the common good, have honesty in their hearts, are seeking peace. And immediately as I say that, you're like, okay, (laughs) because how does that exist? And the reality is, yeah, Uh, we live in a system in which it has not incentivized rulers that lead with integrity with honesty with principles with a sense of seeking the peace of the city rather than seeking power for themselves or for their system and so this means a couple things one maybe you engage as pulling away as a prophetic voice you vote a third party you vote a write-in you don't vote And it's your way, because you've prayed in the scriptures, and you believe it's a time to step away and be a prophetic voice and say, hey, this whole system is broken, and I can't participate in it completely. And it's not the idea of, well, you're throwing away your vote. Well, yeah, but it's also a way to say, this is broken. And if it's just one voice crying in the wilderness, well, God's prophets have been there before. Or... Maybe you engage and you say, between the two major choices I'm given, in reality, I think we can all say, whichever you choose, we're choosing the lesser of two evils. And that is, if you have wrestled and prayed and decided, hey, I believe this system is choosing the lesser of two evils and produces the most peace for the city, then again, we pursue unity, we withhold judgment, but here's the reality too. If I say, "Hey, I am voting for you, Mr. Democrat," or "I'm voting for you, Mr. Republican," because I seek that as the best way to seek peace of the evil or the city, but I truly see it as the lesser of two evils, I can cast that vote, and then I speak truth and prophecy to power. And so. Just because I voted for you, Mr. One-Side-Or-The-Other, or or Ms. One-Side-Or-The-Other, doesn't mean I stop holding you accountable to seeking truth and integrity and peace. And if you hear me talking about one candidate or the other, you are mishearing me. I'm talking about all of them. And so, I don't become an automatic vote. I don't become a system in which people know, hey, I can rally the Christians and I can count on their vote because, and the reality is, neither party can hold all the things together. Neither party, neither system holds all that Jesus called us to, and so you can't just have the entire called out community bought and paid for. And so I am no automatic vote. I continually vote and then possibly oppose the one I voted for at every step of the way, in a way that doesn't oppose things from movement and happening, but says, hey, no, I, I do still hold you accountable. Because ultimately at times, what happens is we can fall in a trap of you voted for this candidate, you voted for this side. And no one wants to hold in the level of like, yes, I voted for this system, and there is good that comes from it, there's also brokenness that came from it. And so sometimes we can get in the trap of we end up defending a system or defending a side rather than saying, hey, I'm a stranger in a strange land. Whoever I vote for is not my king. And if they oppose the kingdom, then I speak truth to power. I'm the prophetic voice crying in the wilderness. So it's okay to say, hey, it's complex. I feel like this is the best situation in this time. But I'm not on your side. I'm not you're not my king, I'm not your unconditional ally. When you oppose the kingdom I'm seeking, then you oppose my king. And in that we seek to be strangers in a strange land and seek the peace of the strange land. I love my city, I love my country. It's good and right to do, but it is not a we. This is not my country, first and foremost. This is not my city, first and foremost. And it does not have my leadership, it does not have my king. And so I will be a great neighbor, a great Indian and a great American." That is the term for a person from Indianapolis, by the way. Use it and popularize it. Indianapolisian. Didn't know that. I learned that. I will be a good American, as long as it seeks the peace and the kingdom of my city. The second it does, I'm out. And so in this, in a spirit of, hey, lack of withholding judgment and seeking unity, I invite us to participate in the unifying act of communion. And communion is both two things. And listen, don't just like shuffle and get ready for communion on this, because communion is two things, and I want you to hear it. One, it is, is, it is a unifying meal. It is a time where we come together and say, though we might wrestle and try to apply Scripture the best we possibly can and come to different outcomes, we are one body, one, body, one unity, and the ultimate, we are all claiming that our king is Jesus, and no one is unconditionally our king before that, and we're unified under that reality. But secondly, it's also this prophetic declaration to the world that says, I don't eat out of the hand or drink the Kool-Aid of either political system, but I eat the body and I drink the blood of my true king and savior. And so we speak prophetically, but we do it in unity. And so I invite you for those who are believers in Jesus to come forward, take of the bread, dip it into the cup, There'll be stations to come down the side of the middle rows, and return down the side. Let's pray. Father, would I pray for a spirit of unity to continue to bind us together as brothers and sisters? To let charity and grace be that which we lead and wrestle with how we best apply scripture and apply it to obedience and apply it to being obedient members of our society. Lord, that you make us continually recognize we're strangers in a strange land, but we're seeking the peace of this strange land. We're seeking it through dinners and adoption and fostering and generosity. We're seeking it by informed ways in which we perform our civic duty in which that it seeks the peace of our neighbors but are then quickly and able to step out of anything lesser than our reverence and loyalty to Jesus if it calls for it and Lord in that I pray that again we'd be bound together brothers and sisters in one family seeking us together. In Jesus' name, amen.